Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madden, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour podcast and your host today is Carla Reffold. We are joined by Paul Anella, the CEO of TDI in Washington DC. Since 2001, TDI has grown into a world-class consulting firm, offering cybersecurity services to government agencies and commercial clients around the world. Paul is a recognized cybersecurity expert who has published articles, delivered seminars and lectures, and conducted interviews to a worldwide audience. Finally, Paul chairs the charitable White Hat USA organization, which has raised over $2 million through the cybersecurity community to help children at the Children's National Hospital. So I hope you enjoy it. Well, Paul, thank you very much for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about you. Tell us where you were born, where you grew up. Yeah, I, I, I really look back, um, uh, not that it was that long ago, <laughs> I make myself sound like I'm 90, but I, I look back uh, at my, my childhood and, and still find myself very fortunate. I was born in Istanbul, Turkey, and... Um, uh, lived in Europe for basically the first five years of my life, um, from from Greece to France to to Italy, um, and then here to the United States, where I spent the majority of my life growing up in the D.C. area. But I spent a great deal of time over the summers um, uh, traveling with my mother to Rome to visit family, because the bulk of our family live actually in Rome, Italy. So uh, a pretty fortunate childhood, but one that I think combined with where I grew up here in, in the U.S. gave me a really very uh, open-minded, uh, tolerant, and I think uh, a really fortunate upbringing. I was able to see a lot of things and see a lot of cultures and experience uh, a ton. That really helped me to shape uh, what I think are my viewpoints both on on life and on people, but also uh, on, uh, on business. And, and how I approach things that isn't just a pure play American or Washington, D.C. or U.S. government point of uh, uh, federal contractor point of view. Uh, I think it's 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 based in a much a much broader experience. Wow, that is fascinating. And do you see that with people that you work with that maybe don't have those experiences? Do you see that your view is a little more diverse? Yes and no. I, I did a, an interesting. Um, I, I did an interesting uh, uh, executive educational program at, at Cambridge, which leads to another funny story. But it was a three-week executive program where, where generally with those things, the, the participants are just as interesting as the as the lecturers, and, and that was the case here as well. We had the deputy prime minister of Kazakhstan as an example, and somebody who ran a seventy-five. Uh, uh, or $7.5 billion fund and, and the like. And um, one of the professors was uh, a Brazilian uh, who actually uh, moved to, to Europe and at one point was the chairman of Segafredo. And because of my upbringing in, in Italy, I remember Segafredo very well. It was a huge coffee manufacturing company. And he had talked about in some of our lessons the fact that uh, he thought I was what they call a, a multinational and, and not in the, 
the general easy sense, but he had written a Harvard Business Review study on people who grew up in multiple cultures and how that application towards business made them very adaptable. And so I, I see in Washington, D.C., others uh, who are like that. I mean, we, we live in a little bit of a microcosm here. D.C. is is number one serves the biggest customer in the world, the U.S. government, but number two has NGOs all over the place from World Bank to IADB to, to the International Monetary Fund and on and on and on, and, and also the hub of, of more embassies than you can count. So it, it, it's, a, it's a really fascinating place, both from a, a cultural perspective, but also from an educational perspective. Per capita, uh, it's the most educated in the country. So. Again, a bit of fortunate in that I don't find myself in this area often uh, having discussions with folks that don't have a broader perspective, but outside of the DC area, I do. And it is interesting how singular point of views from a cultural perspective also can apply to business. And it's really easy to see as well. So I, I am fortunate here, but in the broader American spectrum, not so much. I think uh, generally, uh, there, there's a lot of, of, of an insular view uh, um, with respect to with respect to the way business is conducted, and and um, we have we have done international operations, so we actually have had an office in in London as well, and had a great great chance to spend four or five times a year in London. Uh, one of the one of the <laughs> worst things in shutting it down was was the fact that I couldn't travel over there any anymore as frequently, at least. Um, and there, of course, again, a very multicultural place. You do see multiple aspects in, in, in ways that business can be conducted. But it is particularly unique there as compared to here in DC, too. Um, hopefully that, that got to the root of your question. Well, you, you certainly do see that in London, particularly in the, the West End, where I know your office was. You, it is a very multicultural area. Did you see big differences between the cyber market in the UK and the US? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, um, you know, our, our primary customer pretty much for the, throughout the life of our 20 years in business has been the federal government. While we have done business with probably over 100 different commercial customers, our, our, our revenue bulk is the U.S. government, and they're obviously big. And so the way business is conducted with them is its own world, and it's very rigid and regular. In the U.K., um, a lot of it, in particular in London, revolves around the financial industry, and 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 there is some component of it that supports GCHQ and 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 MOD and 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 the rest. Um, but it's on a smaller scale, at least from what I could tell. So it seems like a lot of it, at least in my experience, was driven by the financial sector, and their spend uh, isn't as significant as it is here in the U.S. From what we could tell. The way they do business is, is fascinating and sometimes very compelling. Uh, sharing a pint at a pub can be all it takes at, at times to, to get a deal closed, and that doesn't happen very often here in the U.S. It, it's a little bit, a lot more rigor, actually, in terms of responding to requests for proposals and the like and, and fair and open competition. Um, but uh, there, there's a lot to be said for relationship building leading to business. So I did love that aspect of, of working in the U.K., you're absolutely right. I see that as well. And I think 
the difference that I found coming the other way is that in America, you know very quickly if somebody wants to do business with you or not, and they'll quite happily tell you that it's a no. I find yep. in the UK that process takes a lot longer and saying no is is less common or, or we seem to shy away from it. Did you find that as well? I did. In fact, it is interesting because I, I, I believe at least in the markets that we serve here in the US, if you shake a hand on a deal, that's it. It will be done unless some catastrophe strikes. In the UK, unfortunately, I, I could count probably on two hands, somewhere between five and ten times where the hand uh, the handshake occurred, but the business did not follow. And I think that, I think that in the in the setting of the pub culture deal, it's a lot easier in in British culture to just move the conversation along than give the hard no. And it was a pretty disappointing lesson to learn in those cases. There certainly were some some uh, great cases of successful follow through where where the handshake led to business. But I haven't really experienced that in the U.S. where someone says we will absolutely work with you and then back out of that. Now, let's talk a little bit about your journey as a founder. So tell me where the name for the company came from, first of all. <laughs> um, well, it, it's funny. I knew I was going to start a business since I was 16, actually. And at some point in this journey, I looked back at uh, old university uh, regs, and there was a there was a journal at my university, at my undergraduate university, where I said I will start a business in, in the journal. And so, I mean, this has been kind of a thing for me for since since I was a child. And there were three other gentlemen uh, who with whom I grew up. In fact, my business partner and I have been uh, best friends since we were five years old. We went to grammar school and to and to uh, um, upper school and, and together. He he went to this really crappy university called Harvard or something like that. But I didn't follow <laughs> in his coattails. Um, but he he he's still my business partner. We've you know we've effectively been friends for for well over 40 years now, and um, two other gentlemen uh, with whom I also went to, to grammar school or middle school or the like, and we had always talked about uh, uh, starting a business together. So Tetrad is four. It was the four of us. Um, and my father, who who has his, he and my mother actually should write their own book about their, their history, but um, he grew up in New York and joined the U.S. Navy. Uh, he he pointed out the fact that a tetrad is is a kind of um, a deployable, self damming uh, um, thing that that traps water in, in in certain instances. And so he said, "Hey, it's it's secure. Why don't you why don't you stick with that name?" <laughs> and so we said, "Okay, sounds good to us." So originally it was it was the four of us, and digital integrity was kind of the nomenclature back in the. Uh, that's hard to say it now, 1999, 2000 timeframe. Uh, and so that's how it came to pass. And now we've we've switched the abbreviation from being in parentheses to of TDI. And we've moved that up front because we kind of kind of uh, uh, go towards the three letters. It's a lot easier to say TDI than Tetrad Digital Integrity is quite a mouthful. But really, it's it was the four of us. Uh, in the end, it, it it should be Dyad because it really was just my business partner and I who carried it through. I really like that. And that was something that I hear a lot about, you know, people who start businesses with people they already know. There, there's that trust there. 
Um, have you found that? Yeah, I mean, there, the, it's an interesting, as part of my, uh, my own journey and, and growing as a person, you tend to gravitate towards what you know and trust. So in the beginning, absolutely. My advisors were family and 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 family friends who were in business and people I had known for, for ages. So going into business with your friend made sense, even though the adage is you never mix money or business with friends and family. Uh, and I had to learn some of that lesson the hard way. I think our friendship has certainly been tested, as has uh, the the relationship with some of my family members who have worked with me. Um, but we have navigated through that. And so I think uh, because of our personalities, I, I joke with my business partner, I say he's an emotional slug and I'm a roller coaster. And that's the only way it works is because when I yell, he doesn't care. And, and, and so th there, there is something to the trust. Absolutely. I, I would never question the motives of, of friends or family with whom I work. The problem is it does test your personal relationship. So there is a toll that, that going into business with friends and family takes. And, and at times, it's quite a heavy one. Now, you were quite young when you founded your company. And I think we see that a lot these days, but we didn't see it so much even 10 years ago, um, and certainly not when you set the business up. So did you find that gave you any challenges? So first, Carla, are you saying I'm not young now? <laughs> you are very young now. You were just exceptionally young then. <laughs> Thank you for the uh, for the pandering. Um, no, I, I jokes aside, I was, and I think it was simply because, again, I, it was in my in my head, it was a de facto future that was going to happen, and it that's that to me is an interesting story. I was, uh, I guess, twenty seven, twenty eight at the time, and my um, father, who is one of my my uh, dearest and truest confidants said to me, because um, I, I, I was pretty successful for that age at the time as well, I, I um, uh, lacking humility a bit, but just to, to tell the story, I was commanding a, quite a great salary for, for someone of that age. And uh, I had two really viable and very, very alluring job offers. One was to start up um, offices in Rome and Paris for for a mentor and boss of, of mine uh, um, at a new startup company uh, as a vice president for Europe and with my penchant for, for travel and, and, and adoration of, of, of my family in Europe, I thought this is incredible. Um, and I also had an offer for to, to be a vice president to, to start up an IT shop within a much larger consulting firm because uh, IT consulting, believe it or not, in some areas was still nascent too. And I brought these to my dad and said, listen, what do you think we ought to do? I ought to do here. And he said, well, I think you ought to get off your ass and start your company. And the funny thing is, the irony in it is he, he, he's very much from the old school where you get a job, you stick with a job, stable future. And that's why he, in fact, told all three of his, his sons, get a computer science degree. Figure out what you want to do with your life later, but at least you can get a job. And he was about stability. So when he told me, get off your ass, I'm sorry, I'm not sure if I can say that on your program, Carl. Um, I think you're fine, yeah. <laughs> um, he actually wanted me to, to, to give it up and take one of the offers because he was kind of trying to knock that idea out of my head because he was saying, listen, at 28 to be a vice president of a sizable organization, that's an impressive thing. Do it. 
and of course, I, I never liked to be told what to do. So, and I knew what he was doing. <laughs> so I did the opposite and gave up the salary. And and this is, uh, you know, I think that was April of of 2001. And we, my wife and I, were married in September of 2000. So that must have been a a bit of a jolt. Uh, hello, my dear. I would like you to support me for the next several years because I won't have a salary. Uh, and that's that's kind of what we did. I, it was, it, in retrospect, it had nothing to do with, I've had people say, wow, that took courage, et cetera. It didn't feel like that, honestly. It felt like an appropriate risk for something that I always knew I was going to do. That's a theme I've heard a lot, that it didn't feel like a risk. That yeah. it just felt like it, it would be successful, kind of that, that deep knowledge inside you. Yeah, and, and that's the funny thing. It did feel like it would be successful, and then <laughs> and then you have the life lessons along the way where you reach really rock bottom at times and, and think, how did I get here? And, and those are the those are interesting stories as well. When you set the business up, did you think you would still be doing it almost 20 years later? No. I, in fact, um, I, there, there have been so many ups and downs over the 20 years. Within the first five, six years, we had an offer to be purchased. Uh, and I was still in that curve of, Oh, wait a minute, this offer is ridiculous. I'm going to be a $200 million company next week. And, and uh, obviously hyperbole there, but uh, I, I turned it down flat uh, for various reasons, not just the offer itself, but um, thinking I'm on this, on this skyrocketing pace. But you know, as, as this pandemic brings stark, starkly to bear, uh, life changes very quickly and you can't predict all of the things that are going to happen and so we we had some some downs that really kicked us in the head and and, and made us retool and, and i did not i thought it would be a 10 15 year ride and i would sell and go on to the next venture or uh, we would become so massive or go public that that i would uh, I, I would find it compelling to stay what's interesting is i've i've found the compelling piece is actually the challenge and, and and I think otherwise I would have been bored and and trying to figure out how to pivot and retool and rebuild is a pretty amazing lesson I believe and it's it is interesting when you see as you mentioned a, a lot more these days uh, younger folk are able to take the helm of a company and be given 20 50 100 million dollars in venture capital and and I think to myself it's amazing that someone would write a check and give it to someone who hasn't built up anything on their own. And, and, and it's fascinating how overlooked those of us who do can be at times. It's, it, I would rather write a check to somebody who's gone through it and lived through it and overcome challenges and knows how to keep making money despite what life has to throw at you. I've probably gone on a tangent there, Carla, but... Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right, and it's it's fascinating to me at the moment. I get a really um, nice inside view of how many companies have all this investment but don't necessarily have the profit or the sales figures to back that up, and I'm really intrigued to see where this goes over the next few years because cybersecurity has been such a bubble for the, the last, probably the last 10 years. Yeah, I, I from a market 
from a market perspective, it is fascinating to watch. On the on the public markets, you see companies like Tenable, who who I suspect this year will do something around 300 million. Last year, they lost 60 million, but their market cap is around 3 billion. That that to me makes no logical sense, other than the Amazons of the world that after 30 years. 25 years start making a profit, but not even on their core business. They make it on their web services that on the AWS side of the house and, and, and but still are, are the most, uh, um, the, the most uh, alluring or at least attractive market companies in on the planet. And it, you know, there's 3000 plus tools out there. It doesn't take 3000 tools to do anything. So obviously we have too much in this market invested into this market in what I would say are, are a lot of the wrong places. And I, I do believe a consolidation is coming and a vetting is coming. And I, and I thought that the pandemic would actually and still think that the pandemic will actually flesh out quite a few of these uh, companies that are getting started with without any really proven track record to, to succeed. Uh, because it's just it's just too much in the marketplace and and without a clear direction where it's going. Imagine a company that's doing a hundred million on the public markets that's actually profitable and 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 has a comprehensive both product and services side to the house. That's an attractive company to me. Um, but yeah, the markets are are their own their own beast at times. I can't quite figure it all out. Now, you've mentioned about how many products are in the market. It is quite a crowded marketplace, it feels like. How do you stand out against all of that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, You know, we, um, we don't really find ourselves to be competing with the, the 3,000 plus tools, if, if you're talking about on the, on the product side, at least. Uh, I mean, from the product that we've, we've TDI's put together a product we call C-Insight. And we believe it complements the tools that are out there. We've done a significant, we've been building it for three years. So over those three years, we've done a significant amount of market research. And there are a few tools that are headed in this direction. And we believe the market is headed in the direction in terms of functional expertise at organizations. But we basically take data, we complement the tools that are out there by taking their data and presenting information and analyzing information and giving it to our to our customers in a way that helps them be more effective. So at the moment, we don't see much competition uh, um, uh, going, doing exactly what we're doing. We see a lot of organization, organizations, very big ones, in fact, trying to do what we've, we've done in our product. Uh, that said, I do see a lot of, in fact, one of, one of our competitors was gobbled up by FireEye. So I do know that the market is moving in that direction and, and uh, the differentiators we have I think we we will want to emphasize even more, and one of them being, we built this product looking at the 20 years of services side expertise that we have. We we looked at our customers from the intelligence community to the DoD to the civilian side to the Fortune 50s to virtually uh, most of the, t the the top 10 banks around the world. I mean, we have done work across the planet. And at various levels, we've consulted to boards um, uh, of Fortune 50 companies on cyber risk and said, wait a minute, we're really pretty good at this. How do we capture that to address a lot of the challenges we see in the market? And we think that's one of our key differentiators are when you're trying to articulate performance, which is what our, our product does, cyber performance uh, 
um, measurement basically uh, for a program. So how you run a program correctly. Don't you want to have experts who've been doing it for quite a while be the ones who weigh in on what you should be looking at? And I think that's a big differentiator for us. Now, I, I really like the new product, and I think you've really come at the right time where companies have invested a lot of money in security, and they do need to now justify that investment and justify their performance and put that in a way that boards and companies can understand around where their performance is. So how, yeah. how does your product do that? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head. We continue to spend more. I think this year we're spending about 25% more over 2019, yet nearly 20% increase in attacks, nearly 200 days to detect a breach, 16 trillion, I think, last year in cybercrime losses. It's, it's mind-boggling. And again, you have 3,000 tools, but why aren't we doing anything? And I think the 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 what we we've, we've looked at is from a functional perspective there's some fascinating research out there uh, i'm 99% certain it's from stanford university and they kind of said um, if you effectively measure program performance specifically the use of kpis for accountability and visibility you will significantly improve organizational performance if you're managing your program the right way, looking at the right things, you will significantly improve your performance by at least 20%, they argue. And this is a long, long-term study. And so when you look at cyber and you ask the question uh, uh, in a boardroom, for example, because now 25% of the uh, Fortune 500 have cyber as a, as a board-level corporate objective. It's sales, it's profit, it's perhaps diversity and inclusion, and cyber. But you walk into a boardroom and ask the question, okay, how are we doing on that cyber thing? There's zero common lexicon and no capacity to answer it. You've got people saying, last year I had, or last month I had 10,000 vulnerabilities, and this month I have 5,000 vulnerabilities. Contextually, that means absolutely nothing. And so we looked at it from the perspective of, of that boardroom and said, you know, if we're looking at sales, you go to a boardroom here or you go to a boardroom in Tokyo and you pass a piece of paper across the table, it's pro forma sales projections. If you're looking at financials, you're looking at a P&L or an income statement or a balance sheet and you're speaking the same language. But here, most people are still asking the question, what are you doing? And the real question we should be asking is how well are you doing? Because that pointing back to that Stanford research starts to become performance that we can actually measure. Wouldn't it be nice if we were instead able to say to the board, 100% of Crown Jewel assets are scanned every seven days. Did you know that 54% of your users have expired credentials? And if you start being able to point to these things and with our tool use, or, or, or through other mechanisms that a lot of organizations are trying to figure out, be able to say, well, it's the IT team that is 70% the reason for this problem or it's the finance team that has 63 of their web-facing assets with high vulnerabilities, or uh, it's, it's accounting that has 84% of their asset inventory that's not up to date. It, when you get down to the, to the real root of what makes an organization perform effectively or not, when it ties down to KPIs and what we're calling cutely, I guess, CPIs, cybersecurity performance improvements, or indicators, sorry, um, you, you start actually changing the paradigm and you stop saying 
in answer to how or what are you doing? Well, I'm using NIST 800-171, or I'm using ISO 27001 as a framework. That's nice. Or I'm spending the industry norm. I must be doing well. Or I'm using tool Y. But at the end of the day, if you're not managing the performance, then you're, it's showing that you're throwing away at least 20% of your budget. And have you seen the comprehension that boards have for cybersecurity shift dramatically over the past few years? No. <laughs> I, I've seen their, their understanding of risk shift. And I, I think their, their awareness of cost has increased. So they're, they're I think, very uh, able to say, wait a minute, we spent 5% of our IT budget last year and 10% this year, or wait a minute, we spent $100 million on, on cyber insurance. But I don't think that they're able to articulate any return on investment or articulate how well they are doing. And that's really the problem. The, it, even sitting on boards myself and trying not to not to be the the uh, subject matter expert in the room, just listening to, to reporting, uh, you, you can see that there is no capacity for understanding because it's not being measured in a way that people can understand from a program management perspective. How do I run this program better? And, and until we can answer that question, there's no way a board can comprehend it. And I don't mean to imply that that either the tool nor the, the, the business process improvement framework that's the under, underpinnings of that tool apply just to the board. It applies to an entire organization. It's, it's comprehension at the board level. It's awareness, situational awareness at the C-suite and the, and the operational executive level. And then it's the technical data to do something about it at the engineering level. Now, that wasn't quite the answer I was expecting. People normally tell me that, yeah, you know, boards are really taking this seriously now and they, they definitely understand it far more than they did. But I think you've got a really good point that actually you are just spending what seems to be an ever-increasing amount of money without necessarily seeing a change in, in your risk. So um, it does sound like you've, you've really kind of got this at the right time. Well, if you think about how boards are com com Posed and, and it is different depending on that's certainly a cultural thing as well But if you think about how boards are composed if your operational experience never dealt with cyber, how can you comprehend it? So it certainly does sound good when someone says you had 10,000 vulnerabilities last week, but 5,000 this week But we both know that means nothing and so I don't think they're they're their general comprehension has increased, but they sure do know they don't want to be in the in the news, nor do they want to spend a hundred million on cyber insurance, nor do they want to continue uh, continue it with increased risk. But I, I, I do not believe that they genuinely understand risk or how well cyber or their cyber organization is performing. And where do you think we'll see cyber go over the next few years? Um, well, I think <laughs> it's 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 a it's a changed horizon given the pandemic, and I think all uh, you know I'm saying what what's obviously all over the news and all over the studies so far, but um, trying to to contend that work cannot be done remotely is is a fleeting argument at this point. It, we have all been ripped from our office spaces and work from home. That's just a fact of life now. So I do believe there will be a significant trend that way. Corporations understand that one, it's a significant savings to them. 
culturally, I don't know how it will play out in the long run because we're dealing with some incredibly unique issues about raising children at home while they cannot go to school, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the trend will be towards a little bit of adapting a, a, a workforce that wasn't necessarily available to organizations before where you had to be in an office, you had to be in a particular location. So where there is predicted to be, I think, uh, in two years, four million uh, openings in the cybersecurity workforce, I think you'll have a little bit of a broader spectrum of folks to pull from. But of course, from a trending perspective, there's a significant amount of risk with remote work. And I, I believe the, the remote work paradigm is going to be the final death knell to data silos. It's just, that's over. And, and, and looking to understand how to secure that environment and not again with the, the next shiny tool, but with a, a, an effectively performing program is going to be a big trend. Uh, and, and, and I think, I, I think that's, that's just an amazing uh, side effect of what's happening with it with this pandemic. Neither good nor bad. It's just it's it's fascinating to watch. Now there's a couple of bits in there, but one of them would be if we do return to the office in some capacity, even if that's on a, a split basis with some people more remote and some people in the office. What sort of security challenges does that bring? Well, I think you still have the same issues around around transactional assurance between uh, between mobile devices and and, um, and and the traditional data silos or that that are at organizations. I believe what what's already been happening with cloud transitions from small to large to government organizations alike has just been accelerated, and I think we've been trying to tackle that issue anyway. I don't believe that that's changed the paradigm. I just believe it's it's brought it, it's brought timelines to the left. And I and in talking to a lot of colleague uh, companies, I mean some of them massive, um, and some of them publicly traded, the cyber spend in many cases has actually gone up. And I think that's because that timeline is moving to the left. It's not a question of of a five year transition to to addressing the remote workforce and mobile devices and the rest. It's, this is here now, we gotta move fast. And, and so you see the spend, which is the typical reaction, but as we talked about earlier, that doesn't mean that the result is there just because we're spending more. And you touched on the opportunity for new people to join that workforce and diversity in cyber has been a huge issue for a number of companies recently. So do you think this could actually improve the diversity profile of the industry? I hope so. I mean, it's it's abysmal. Last I checked, it was something like, uh, from a gender perspective, 12% in the U.S. of women in the cyber workforce, which is awful. Um, and I hope that it opens it up to to uh, the less traditional uh, uh, office uh, um, uh, employee, which in, in the United States means generally a middle-aged white male, specifically in cyber. So I, I do I truly do hope that that opportunity uh, uh, opens it up because I, I read probably entirely too much sociology and, and psychology regs, but there is something to be said for in in uh, innate prejudices that that we kind of learn as we grow up, and I think the the fact that you can have interviews now without without seeing people genuinely will increase opportunities for people who otherwise would not have had it. So I, I hope that that is the, the end solution.
Yes, so do I. I've been a big champion of gender diversity in cyber for, for a long time. And I think this year we've all seen the Black Lives Matter protests and how uh, you know race has become an issue for us as well. Uh, I feel, certainly in the UK, that we're quite well represented within cybersecurity, at least uh, maybe not at a senior level. But do you see the same thing over here, that there's actually a diversity within cybersecurity from a race perspective? I would say more so than from a gender perspective, yes. Um, and it's interesting because a big, big contingent of the cyber spend in the United States is the U.S. government. And so we see a significant amount of personnel coming out of the United States military. As a result, the U.S. military is certainly far more integrated than the public at large. And I believe that lends itself to to part of that diversity and inclusion. Um, however, the U.S. military is also predominantly male, and that doesn't help the gender perspective. But absolutely, from from a from a race perspective, I do see a lot more uh, inclusion and diversity than I do uh, uh, in some other industries, as an example. Now, I wanted to touch on the White Hat Gala, which I believe you chair here in DC. I've been to the, the White Hat Ball in the UK, and it's an amazing event. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the gala that you have here in DC? Yeah, gladly. I, I'm a huge proponent of White Hat. Um, we, TDI, had opened an office in the UK in the early 2000 teens. I don't even know how one says that. So, so let's just say 2000. I'm not sure anyone does. <laughs> Um, so 2011, 12, let's say. And uh, prior to that, I had been uh, visiting. We, we actually were doing work in the UK prior to opening uh, an office there. And I had attended the White Hat Gala a couple of times and recognized the unbelievable work that they were doing there. I don't know if you know this, but when they got started, I think the first White Hat Ball in the UK was held in a pub um, and and it, it grew significantly to where if you were there uh, uh, last year, sadly, this year, they're, they're um, sorry, uh, last year I was not there, but they still had it. Um, the year before, if you were there, uh, uh, the place is filled to capacity. And when they got started, the organization they support, because their charter is effectively to support children at risk, which is the charter we here in, we inherited here in the United States. And so their, their uh, beneficiary is Childline, which helps t uh, talk uh, poor children off the ledge when they are considering suicide. And the statistics are astoundingly positive. If a child can reach someone on the other end of a phone line, they are very likely not to commit suicide. Whereas if they do not, the statistics are actually pretty depressing. And when they got started, Childline could not support the volume of calls that they had and as a direct result of White Hat's involvement, they get 100% of the calls that come in now. So it's a fascinating story, and I was really moved by it. And so we, TDI, supported tables there. And uh, at one point, a, um, I'd say, I guess it was around 2013, so not far into having attended in the UK, I spoke with a, a fellow entrepreneur who actually started a cyber company the very same day as did I. Um, and he and I both worked at a company together before that. We continue to ask, why the hell didn't we do it together? But that's neither here nor there now. But I went to him and said, listen, 
you got me involved with Children's National Hospital. What if we do something bigger than just giving money? What if we take this concept, ask White Hat in the UK if they'll support us and have that here in the US? We've got a tremendous amount of large uh, cyber-based company or companies that do cyber that could support it, like like the Raytheons of the world and the and the Booz Allens of the world, uh, and, and and you and I can get this off and running. And he said, "You're nuts. No one's gonna no one's gonna go to this. There's, who are you and I to pull something like this off?" And I said, "You're right. So let's build the right board, <laughs> and then we'll get them interested." And so we went to. Um, we went to a gentleman named Andrew Blair, who's the, the CEO of Colonial Parking, in fact, here in, in D.C., and he's an adamant supporter of Children's National. And he said, listen, you guys aren't even just going to break even. You're going to kill it, and I'm going to make sure that that happens. So he introduced us to the CEO of Children's National. I went to White Hat in the U.K. and said, this is what we're trying to do. And I met with all of the original founders, whom I had come to know by this point, and they said, that's fantastic. You can have the moniker as long as your charter says that you're going to help children at risk and, and, and the money all goes to that to the foundation to whatever foundation is chosen we're all behind it and so they were very very supportive we then engaged tony cole who's a pretty uh, known uh, uh, luminary in the space and said tony do you think we can pull this off and he said well i think you'll break even and so we built a board which was the most critical factor because we're not really an entity we're just we're just folks on a board who are in the cyberspace who bring sponsorship to bear to pull off a black tie event that's really, really fun uh, so that all the money can go to Children's National. And we've raised over two million so far. Um, and, and not that I'm competitive, but that's, uh, that's more than they have in the UK. So I just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> Well, it, it is it is more, and it's, I think it's great that you've been able to do that. And I'd always wondered how there ended up being a white hat in America. So yeah, now I know that, that's really it. And they've they've been they've been tremendously supportive along the way. Uh, there's a number of of folks that I've come to know and really respect, uh, not just in White Hat, but who go to White because everyone in the cyber community in the UK goes to the White Hat Ball, uh, and, and so it's it's great to. To be able to participate uh, on, on this level really is fantastic, and we and we adhered to the recipe that made them successful originally. It's you, you sit down at a table, and 90 minutes later, you're up, and there's gambling, and there's drinking, and networking, and it's about having fun with with the backdrop being you're helping kids, and of course, this is the cyber community doing it. Uh, so I, I think it's really it's a one of a kind thing in in the UK, and it's a one of a kind thing here too. Now, they also have the White Hat Rally in the UK. Any yeah. plans to do that over here? <laughs> uh, well, I need to ask my wife because there's only apparently 24 hours in a day and I'm, I'm, I'm about at capacity when we decided to build a product too. That was, a, that was what pushed the, the boundaries of how much time is available in a given day. Uh, we'd love to do more. I think really the, the jokes aside, the, the answer is time or a champion who wants to run with it. Um, we had started talks of, of doing not a rally, but different events uh, that would also be supportive. But the pandemic has sure put a, a stop to many of those discussions. Yes, it has made a lot of events very difficult. Now, we wrap up every podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So are you ready? Well, 
Do I? <laughs> I was trying to come up with something witty. I'm ready. <laughs> what turns you on professionally? Winning and, and diverse, high-performing teams, even, even when they're contentious. What turns you off professionally? Duplicitous people. How do you unwind? You mean besides a pint? Uh, I usually don't, but, but when I do, it's with family, friends, and travel. What profession other than your own would you like to try? Uh, there were actually three that I always wanted to be. One was a professional footballer, your kind, not the American kind, um, a Broadway star, or a concert pianist. Oh, wow. They are diverse. <laughs> it's all unattainable at this point. <laughs> what activity gives you the most energy? Honestly, anything around people. Uh, groups small enough that I can engage with, but big enough to, to give me energy. I'm, I'm a pure play extrovert. Who is your biggest inspiration? Robin Williams. Oh, why? Uh, I'm a true empathic person, so which will probably spoil my answer coming up, but um, I, I was remarkably moved by, honestly, his movies. So it, it, I find myself in the characters that he portrays, and, and, and some of them are amazing. It's, it's such a depressing end to him, but he's also, I, I'm also compelled by intellectual brilliance and the complexities that, are, that lie, lie inside of people like that. I mean, like, I mean, and sadly, I think many of them suffer the same, the same fate. So not to be depressing, <laughs> but I think it is a tormenting life. And, and to see the genius that comes out of some of those lives is, 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 is pretty interesting. But it's the characters he's portrayed that have been really very inspiring to me. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Empathy. You are at your best when you're doing what? Socializing, professionally or, or personally. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? Be kind. It's truly uh, an undervalued strength. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Well done, son. You supped the marrow of life. That's a very good answer. I like that one. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining me today. It's been uh, really eye-opening. Well, it's been my pleasure, Carla. I'm happy to join anytime. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe. And for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.